Hey, it's Mark. We've spoken before about the mental health crisis in this country, from the national shortage of healthcare providers to the epidemic levels of depression and suicidal ideation among adults and younger people. One of the most interesting aspects as it relates to health marketing is how mental health as a topic has crossed over into mainstream culture. With every new professional athlete, celebrity, or influencer who opens up about their mental health struggles on social media, the conversation gets a little less taboo. And that's important, given the stigma that continues to haunt people who struggle with this disease. Our guest this week, Richard Liu, is doing much to break down those stigmas even further. Liu, a journalist, news anchor, and former businessman, has recently released the second of his two films on mental health. His 2023 documentary, Unconditional, tackles the subject through the lens of the caregiver by profiling three families, including his own family's journey. This week on the podcast, Jack O'Brien interviews Richard Liu for his experience directing Unconditional, some of the misunderstood aspects of caregiving, why pharma media collaborations are important, as well as where he sees room for improvement in changing the narrative of mental health. And Lesh is here with a health policy update. Hey, Mark, today I'll discuss the historic news that the federal government has officially announced the first 10 drugs that will fall under Medicare price negotiations. And Jack, what's on tap for the healthcare social media front this week? This week, we're talking about pharma bro Martin Shkreli claiming that his ex, formerly Twitter account, has been permanently banned. We delve into a study about the effects of selfies and the tie-in with plastic surgery. And Alice Cooper has been dropped by a cosmetics company following anti-trans comments. I'm Mark Iskowitz, Editor-at-Large, and welcome to the MMM Podcast, medical marketing media's show about healthcare marketing writ large. Hello and welcome to the MMM Podcast. My name is Jack O'Brien. I'm the digital editor at MMM. Pleased to be joined today by Richard Liu of NBC. Richard, how are you doing today? Hey, thanks for having me, Jack. I appreciate you coming on the show. Obviously, the third M in M, M, and M is media, and you know you play an important role given your position at NBC, but you also have a new documentary out called Unconditional. Want to start there, if you could give us the inspiration behind producing this documentary, and then we can get into the impact and some of the other aspects of it from there. Yeah, you know, Jack, on M, M, and M, uh, as you bring this important conversation together, we realize that you know, the, the brand of caregiving or the brand of mental health um, is, might be called a little ho-hum. And, you know, when, when you bring up the topic with folks, uh, it, it's tough to get the second question, right? You say, oh, so what, what are you doing? Uh, you work on a documentary. Um, it's about mental health and caregiving, right? Getting to the second question of into that interest level, I know is tough. And so the purpose of the docu- documentary is to really uh, break open, hopefully, a bit of that ho-hum. And that, that ho-hum is also full of ha-ha as well. I mean, uh, in my own journey of taking care of my dad, um, I got a lot of new laughs out of it. Got a lot of new cries, too. But I, I definitely found that in the ho-hum, there's a lot of new ha-ha. And, and when it comes to just mental health, you know, um, we always talk about it as a weakness. Without, well, we, we might not say that. Like when people bring up mental health, you might say, oh, man, that's, that's such a downer. That's so, such weaknesses in, 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 in folks. And it's not. It's, it's also a strength. And I think those are the two major, if I were to go 50,000 feet, uh, as to why, 
I wanted to discuss it this way in this documentary. And it does involve marketing, right? And the way we market this, this topic of, of health is difficult, as you know very, very well uh, from what you do, um, to, to really give us a balanced view. And I don't mean like 50-50. I just mean to consider the other stuff with it, not just the, the, the difficult or the ho-hum stuff. I appreciate you talking about the nuance as it relates to the mental health, you know, crisis in this country. And obviously a lot of the marketers that are in our audience have worked, you know, either on campaigns or different efforts related to behavioral health and things of that nature. I think the, the caregiver angle maybe doesn't get talked about enough. When you think about it from that perspective, maybe what are some of the more misunderstood aspects of caregiving? Because like you said, I think a lot of people think of it and they think, oh, this is really heavy. This is dense. It's very emotional. But, you know, this is something that millions of Americans go through on a day-to-day basis oh yeah um i think it's underestimated we say 53 well arp found 53 million in family caregiving space but you know that's like five years ago and you know as of the last three years like how many more mm-hmm. right what and and uh, my my documentary team because we're full of journalists you know what we did and also being a former marketer uh in my in my previous life as a business person um we modeled it as you know, we could be in the high 60s in terms of millions. And then you add in the mental health dynamic. I mean, we're really talking about almost a third of the country because those are going through mental health and caregiving separately. If you're going through uh, through caregiving, you most certainly are going through a mental health journey. And I say that as a journalist and just also as a caregiver, you know, I, I didn't think I'd be saying I went through a mental and I'm going through a mental health journey. Right, Jack? I mean, that's a little bit is above your pay grade. I mean, unless you also do a therapy on the side, but maybe you do. I, I can tell you that I don't, but I, I appreciate those that do because they obviously offer a, a key service there. Can you kind of talk about it just from your own perspective, too? Because obviously this is, I, I wouldn't say a, a passion project, but you obviously come into it with your own experience that informs you as you're producing the documentary. How did that go through with you know the different uh, interviews that you conducted and the different angles you were looking to explore with the project? I think uh, the ability to reach the interviewee, uh, which uh, you, you and me, you and I both, uh, you know, are thinking about, okay, well, how do I get the best out of this conversation? And what I realized was that me sharing that I was a caregiver, regardless of the person's age or locality or background or experience, that once I just tapped into my personal experience as a caregiver for my father and my own um, mental health journey that I was able to, to have heartier conversations and places that got to the core of why the two of us in an interview were going to do well. And sometimes that might take 15 minutes or 30 minutes, you know, as you, you know how it goes. Sometimes you can be talking for, 10 minutes and finally you get to that moment where the two of you are really getting the most out of the conversation. In the case for this documentary, I, it happened pretty quickly. And I'm talking like maybe three minutes, two minutes. And we're talking about our, 
our new cries or our new laughs or our most difficult moments, which surprise the heck out of me. And I, I think caregiving strangely has that ability to break down what other, what, what, whatever differences we naturally think make us different in caregiving that goes away so fast. And can you talk a little bit, because this is obviously not, not your first documentary. You also had Sky Blossom. Is there a through line when you look at maybe some of the, the narrative or the thematic elements between the two documentaries as it relates to, you know, subject or anything of that nature? Thanks for, for recognizing. Yeah, this is a second one. And the first one, which was called Sky Blossom. I think the, the first one educated me as well as the producing team about how to cover the topic. The second movie, which is unconditional, was a little bit more, you know what? We're just going to do it. We're just going to go for it. We're going to try to show mental health in caregiving. Because you know this, even by itself, talking about those two topics is way uh, difficult. And not, you know, when you're thinking about um, the demand for a product like this to put on the marketing hat for a moment, the supply is plenty, the demand is low. And when I was thinking about the second movie, I knew that we were going off into even a more difficult space in terms of interest in the film. And, you know, that's pretty tough for donors. You know, it's pretty tough because uh, now we weren't just saying caregiving, we we're saying mental health and caregiving. And the, the interesting thing is that this has had faster take up than the first film did. Admittedly, the first one came out in 2021. It was the most widely distributed feature documentary at the time. But again, we're in the middle of COVID and folks, you know, it was a different different environment. And today with Unconditional, you know, after playing at the White House and the US Capitol and we're, we're planning on the United Nations next, that surprised us. Like we didn't think again that this would have the market demand that it that we're seeing so far. Not that it's gargantuan. It's, it's no Oppenheimer, right? But I, what I'm saying <laughs> is, it's you know, it's because it ain't three hours long. Uh, but it's it's you know, it it's had more than more interest than we thought it would. And I want to touch on that, too, because I know that the Biden administration has obviously put a, a significant priority on trying to bolster mental health services across the country and addressing some of those scarcities that you talk about in terms of whether or not there are enough mental health professionals and people being able to assist those that are suffering from whatever conditions that they're dealing with in their lives. To be asked to screen it at the White House, you know, at obviously such an honor. But what was that experience like? How did that all come together? What was your reaction to it? What the heck was I doing there? <laughs> I mean, that was what it was. I mean, we were, I was standing in the East Garden. You know, typically we, we're used to seeing this. I'm not a White House uh, correspondent, but, you know, I, I've seen enough video and I've been to the White House a couple times. But, you know, you never see yourself standing in one of the gardens. There we were standing in the East Garden. Uh, and we had the little riser with the little presidential, you know, White House logo there. And you're, I'm standing there talking. And then I see a picture of it later. And I, I, I just can't believe it's happening. But it, it is like that in the caregiving community because we have seen so little. And to see 
uh, our White House, whether it's an R or a D or an I or whatever you want to call it, our White House saying that caregiving mental health uh, is important by just bringing in the movie to, to show at what I, I, I like to call the most exclusive movie theater in the world with 40, 40 something odd seats in it. Uh, we were we were heartened that maybe we're, we're hitting a better time because like you said, Jack, I mean, this this administration has done more on caregiving and mental health and in military communities as well than uh, we've seen in our, our recent history. So that, that's that's a good thing for all the caregivers out there. And again, regardless of R, D or I or anything else. And I'm curious on that front, too, because obviously there's been a lot of investment placed in the behavioral health and caregiving space. And that's obviously something that you talk about there as being very welcome to that community. Where is there still room for improvement from your own experiences in terms of reporting and talking with some of these people that, you know, day in and day out, they're caring for people that otherwise wouldn't be able to have somebody by their side? Where do we still need to see more investment in terms of resources or other capabilities? I think we, um, and not to avoid a very specific question here, is to say, Jack, that it would be culturally. Mm-hmm. We got we got to make some cultural investments in what it, in the way we perceive what this thing is, and to to make it more part of our day to day. You know, I'm not saying we need like a thousand, you know, films and movies about caregiving. What I am saying is just to include it into other conversations as part of the conversation. So, uh, and, and that, and in that way, we'll be able to accept that it is a full-time, if not a more than full-time job for many Americans. And we need to embrace them because they're part of our economy. If we have more than what I believe we have up to three quarter trillion untapped economic value in family caregiving, where are we including those folks? Why aren't we talking about those folks? And if it's untapped, how do we tap it and make it part of a, an important part of what we do? So I, I think there's a, I would, if you gave me a, a, another, you know, one or $2 million to do something, would I, would I do another film? I might. And it might be more on the narrative side, again, to try to attack the cultural misunderstandings about it. You know, um, I, I, throughout the film, our theme was joy despite difficulty. It's true. I, I want to go back to something you talked about is that kind of cultural change that we need to see. And you use the word narrative, which kind of leads into my next question. Talk to us about the narrative change campaign, what went into that and how successful that's been. That has been um, part of our uh, plan from the beginning. And in order to really have an action-based narrative is then to think in the very beginning at the inception of the project, where will it be seen and where will it go? Where does it, where does the rubber hit the road? And so from the very start, the question was where, which streamer will take it? Which terrestrial will take it? Which cabler will take it? Can we get to the White House? Can we get to the U.S. Capitol? Okay, if we know that that's the place where we are going to be able to have a true impact campaign, we can't have a tree falling in a forest. We've got to get it out there. And then 
which as you know, in distribution, that is often not thought of in film, in documentary especially. Most documentarians, and this is not a slight on them at all, they're great storytellers. And so they finish their documentary and then they, don't don't the people just come? <laughs> don't they just show up? And so our uh, the the way we approached it different, and I, I do think of it, it's a result of my time working in, in tech and at, at Citibank and then going to business school is to approach this as a business opportunity and to use those very uh, lessons for something that's very community focused. And so we, we focus on distribution, knowing that that is the way in a, in a social impact campaign, people have to see it. How are you going to impact people if they don't see it? It's not available to them. And so our partners are not only Fortune 500, they're also uh, some of the largest NGOs in in the country, ARP being involved, Alzheimer's Association being involved, uh, and then all of the military groups, um, Blue Star families and the others that come alongside to, to help us get it out there. And obviously, it's powerful to be able to have that sort of backing in any effort that you do, especially when it comes to something like this on a subject such as this. I want to go back because you obviously have the background as a marketer, and you know that's primarily who our audience are, pharma and biotech marketers. What are some of the key lessons, I guess, that you can impart to them as they maybe tackle these issues going forward as it relates to mental health, but certainly on the caregiving front too. It's not like this issue is going away and maybe they're not as well-versed as they should be. Is there any sort of advice that you would pass along to them? You know, I've really appreciated how you mentioned pharma has leaned in on a topic like this. Um, for instance, ASI, EMD, Serono, um, Cigna, in terms of a healthcare insurance company, uh, and others have said, yeah, we, we think this is the right thing to do and have really been big partners. Uh, for instance, ASI has been with us for years now. I mean, I think maybe five years that have been committed to this. And so for marketers on the side of pharma, um, these are some of the things that fit your strategy very well in, in that it's the intangibles that you got to reach that can bridge what your products are in real, in, in, in the real world, if you will. And sometimes we forget that and that's okay. Cause I understand when you're so far, depending where you are, uh, in the value chain, it's tough to remember these, these intangibles and caregiving to, to, for storytellers is not is unlike most other story types. It's, it really takes in almost all of our senses as humans to be able to communicate what it is in reality. Yet so much of uh, the products that are out in the space, you brought up the, uh, the, the, the sector of, pharm- of pharma, is to address a lot of the, the, the difficulties that these family structures are facing. And so, as you know, uh, the decisions made for the products that come out of pharma are most often, at least in the caregiving space, well, that's kind of obvious, uh, includes the caregiver. They're part of the decision tree and a big part of the decision tree. And so these kind of collaborations with cultural um, uh, players 
movies, you know, media, which I, is why it's part of MM&M, is so important. And I, I think those, those collaborations really do pay off. No, it's such a it's such a key insight there in terms of, you know, it's not just one aspect of the industry carrying along. There really is a confluence and an intersection between all these different uh, dynamics. Richard, I've really enjoyed having you on the pod here and being able to discuss the documentary and the work you're doing in this space. I wanted to give you the final word in terms of, you know, where can we see the documentary? Where can people in our audience go see it? And if there's anything else that you want to pass along as it relates to the mental health or caregiving space that maybe we hadn't touched on yet. Yeah, uh, Jack, thanks. You can, you can catch it on, on PBS Passports, on Amazon Prime. We hope to be getting it to Peacock. And I mentioned earlier that uh, we'll be planning on playing it uh, at the United Nations for um, their International Caregiving Day in, in October. I would say, you know, if there is something we'd love to see is to have screenings um, at any organization or business of this film to broaden out the way we talk about the spaces that uh, affect um, the target markets for, for pharma, pharma companies uh, and healthcare companies. And it, 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 it would, it, I think would help not only the in, internal headcount and in, in the, in the team to understand deeper how their products affect family units can also be a product which we've seen with our partners like Cigna and ASI on the uh, in in the value chain. So if it's your if it's your bundlers, if it's your um, your your regional leads, to help them bring in their collaborators, their partners in their respective regions, this is a way to do something that is arts involved and not panel, not you know, workshop, it's an arts-based thing. And that can, I think, broaden the conversation and show what we found, how certain companies are leaders in, in, in thinking through the entire ecosystem that, that their business addresses. Excellent. Well, Richard, again, I really appreciate your insights, being able to speak on this topic with such eloquence and, you know, passion. And obviously I wish you the best as you take this film across not only the country, but it sounds like the world with being able to bring it to the United Nations and certainly hope that if you have another film down the line or other work in the caregiving space that we can highlight, we'd love to have you back on the show. Thanks, Jack. And thanks for understanding where this might fit into the, to your conversation over at MM&M, because I know it's a little bit outside the center, if you will. No, absolutely. No, it's the third M. It, it needs all the respect and, and treatment that it deserves. So we're glad that we're able to include you in it. Cheers. Thanks so much. Health Policy Update with Lesha Bouchak. The federal government has announced the first 10 drugs that will be included in Medicare's new price negotiating provision, as dictated by the Inflation Reduction Act passed last year. On Tuesday, Medicare said these 10 drugs will be the first to have negotiated lower prices starting in 2026. The drugs include Bristol-Myers Squibb's Blood Thinner Eliquis, which accounts for the highest Medicare gross spend right now at $16.5 billion. Next is Jardian's Oehringer Ingelheim's Diabetes and Heart Failure Drug, which accounts for $7.1 billion of Medicare gross spending. Janssen's Zarelto Merck's Januvia 
AstraZeneca's Farxica, Novartis's Entresto, Amgen's Enbrel, Pharmacyclic's Imbruvica, Janssen's Stellara, and Nova Nordisk's Fiasp are also on the list. Four of the ten are diabetes drugs, while others treat blood clots, heart failure, rheumatoid arthritis, and blood cancers. Together, these 10 drugs cost Medicare more than $50 billion from June 2022 through May 2023, making up about 20% of Medicare Part D spending. And people on Medicare spent $3.4 billion in out-of-pocket costs on these drugs in 2022. Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services Administrator Chiquita Brooks-Lasher said in a CNBC interview that the list announcement was a historic moment. This is going to be the first time that Medicare is able to negotiate drug prices. The law was very prescriptive about the top 10 drugs that we were going to negotiate in this first round of negotiation. And so we followed the law, which was to look at which are the top spending drugs in the Medicare prescription drug program, which drugs have been on the market for at least seven years. And we're really excited to announce the drugs that have been selected today. The manufacturers of the drugs have 30 days to agree to participate in the negotiations or else they will have to face excise taxes or withdraw their drugs from Medicare coverage. If they agree to the negotiations, Medicare will announce the new discounted prices of the drugs on September 1st, 2024. Those discounts may range from 25% to 60% off a drug's list price. I'm Lesha Bouchak, senior reporter at MMM. Social media, Instagram, TikTok, TikTok, Twitter, YouTube, social media update. And this is the part of the broadcast when we welcome Jack O'Brien to tell us what's trending on healthcare social media. Hey, Jack. Hey, Mark. We've got a lot to talk about this week, and I wanted to start by following up on something we discussed a couple episodes ago. Eminem has reportedly requested that his music be removed from an agreement with licensor BMI after Republican presidential candidate and former Roy Vant Sciences CEO Vivek Ramaswamy went viral for rapping Lose Yourself at the Iowa State Fair earlier this month. Also just in, DeMar Hamlin, months removed from a cardiac arrest he suffered on Monday Night Football, has made the Buffalo Bills 53-man roster, so obviously some very promising health news there. And we have a couple of celebrity health updates. In recent days, we learned that a congenital heart defect was the cause of Bronnie James's cardiac arrest on July 24th, with a James family spokesperson saying that there is confidence he will make a full recovery and return to basketball soon. Also, Elton John was hospitalized after a fall in his Italian villa, though he has been discharged. Former One Direction member Liam Payne was hospitalized for a serious kidney infection, leading him to postpone his tour. And Duran Duran's Andy Taylor said his prostate cancer was, quote, asymptomatic. But we begin this week talking about one of our favorite topics on the show, pharma bro Martin Shkreli. On Monday, Shkreli claimed that his original account on X, formerly Twitter, has been permanently banned following his, quote, series of back and forth exchanges between Shkreli and representatives of the platform. Shkreli's old account has been banned since 2017 for the alleged harassment of Teen Vogue editor Lauren Duca. In a press release, Shkreli criticized ex-owner Elon Musk for failing to live up to his promise of allowing free speech on the social media platform and loosening previous content moderation policies. Quote, Elon has been very clear and vocal about the fact that his platform is one for free speech, but his actions and the actions of ex-officials prove otherwise, Shkreli said. The fact that he's aware of this decision and is standing by flies in the face of everything he's previously said in that regard. My original account, while humorous, did not pose any violent threats. 
So the fact of the matter is I've been censored for doing nothing wrong. If Elon truly wanted his platform to be the embodiment of free speech, my account would have been reinstated. This latest Shkreli headline comes weeks after his former company, Viera Pharmaceuticals, sealed a deal to sell the rights to Daraprim, the anti-parasitic drug that the firm famously price hiked in 2015. This is kind of an intersection between some of our favorite topics involving Elon, the pharma bro, pharma online, social media, all that sort of stuff. Mark or Lesha, I don't know who wants to take on, but it just stood out to me in terms of we probably have to bring this up on the show because we've talked about both of these independently and now they're kind of colliding in this very strange way. Yeah, it's interesting that Martin Shkreli is now having beef with Elon Musk because it just seems like Elon Musk is always having beef with someone. But you would think that Martin Shkreli and Elon Musk were more similar than they are different, Mm -hmm. like personality wise. So it's interesting that they're having beef now. But from my understanding, Martin Shkreli does still have an account, just not his official one, right? Yes. He's been pretty aggressively posting on X on this other account, even just today posting something claiming that, um, you know, Elon Musk has reinstated other Twitter accounts that were originally banned, but that his hasn't been reinstated and arguing that the, quote, free speech absolutist rhetoric has disappeared from X. It seems like he's going to be pushing this uh, for a while. Um, It's also interesting to note that Donald Trump just reappeared on X as well in the last week, um, which was, you know, Musk's decision to reinstate his account was pretty controversial. I think the difference here, though, is that Martin Shkreli was actively like harassing and cyberbullying a specific person on Twitter. And that's the reason why his, why his account was suspended. Not so much, I think, this like free speech argument. So it'll be interesting to see how X responds to that and what they end up doing with his account. And this isn't even the first time that we've had this kind of strange crossover between Martin Shkreli and Elon Musk. I think we all got pitched about a month or so ago when there was still the conversation about whether Elon and Mark Zuckerberg were going to have their cage match that a company affiliated with Martin Shkreli had put together an AI uh, demonstration of basically what that fight would look like. And so I I, again, kind of to your point, Lesha, I don't know if he's necessarily pining for Elon. I think that there would have been a lot of overlap between the two of them, but clearly there's room for beef. Mark, where do you come down on this kind of strange encounter? Uh, well, he, you know, um, as you guys pointed out, Lesha pointed out, he, you know, was really banned because he was uh, trolling somebody and, uh, and, and, and it crossed over, you know, into uh, really cyberbullying. He, kind of doesn't seem to understand the difference between that and just kind of having provocative discussions on social media. It is kind of surprising that, uh, you know, Trump is back, you know, welcome back, uh, but not Shkreli, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, when you, when you compare the two, um, and their, you know, uh, level of, of how, how vocal each one is and, uh, how, you know, off kilter they are, so to speak, uh, in, in their tweets. Uh, but, um, as you pointed out, uh, Jack, and, and you're reporting on, on Shkreli, you know, with his, uh, his last company called Drug Like came out and kind of also flew in the face of the fact that he was uh, facing a lifetime ban from being in the pharma industry, working in the pharma industry again. Um, and the FTC, um, earlier this year, you know, filed a motion to hold him in contempt, uh, for, failing to provide the uh, agency with information to determine, to determine whether he is violating uh, that permanent ban uh, from working in the industry. Here he is again, kind of not playing by the rules. Uh, so I, I take it with a, a grain of salt, whatever he says, obviously, and uh, I, uh, it'll be interesting to see how X comes down uh, on, on this, whether it's uh, you know going to kind of go all in for 
uh, free speech or, you know, kind of draw a line at, at his brand of, uh, you know, uh, provocateur. Yeah, it's interesting that he's since he's been released from prison last year, there's been these multiple attempts through drug like through his substack, through this AI bout of Musk and Zuckerberg of trying to recapture, I think, some sort of public attention. Not really sure how well that has played. Obviously, we're talking about on the podcast, but that's also in light of him, you know, having some sort of beef with the richest man on the face of the earth. So it'll be interesting. One other thing I just wanted to note is that when uh, I had thrown this into the mix just yesterday in terms of being able to put it in our script, he popped up in my TikTok algorithm because he has a active TikTok account too and talking about whistleblowers and keeping your mouth shut and not being a snitch. So he's he's everywhere and <laughs> he's everywhere and everything all Starving the Starving for time. attention, isn't he? <laughs> exactly. So can't escape him online. Right. We're going to go into our second story here, which comes from Lesha. If you've spent any time on TikTok, you've most likely come across hundreds of videos about cosmetic surgeries. I know we've talked about them here on the show. Those range from rhinoplasties, nose jobs, to Barbie Botox. TikTok is a deep well of videos that show people getting a countless array of cosmetic and aesthetic procedures to perfect their, quote, selfie face. However, as a result of this, cosmetic surgeries among young people have soared in recent years. Data from the American Academy of Facial, Plastic, and Reconstructive Surgery found that rates of such procedures have had a significant increase, specifically around demand for facial plastic surgery and cosmetic procedures. The survey found that 75% of facial plastic surgeons reported a rise in the number of patients under the age of 30 who are seeking injections and cosmetic procedures. Trends like lip flips, nose jobs, blepharoplasties, and Brotox are incredibly popular on the site. Still, experts have raised concerns not only about the damaging effects on the rise. However, experts have raised concerns not only about the damaging effects of this rise of mental health and self-esteem, but also about the physical dangers of certain surgeries. Brazilian butt lifts, or BBLs, are well known to be harmful and sometimes fatal. Yet the procedure has seen a rise in popularity in recent years despite those dangers. Dr. Anthony Yoon perhaps the most popular plastic surgeon on TikTok with more than 8 million followers, is also known for raising concerns about what procedures are unnecessary and even dangerous for young patients. In a recent video, he describes how scarring from lip lifts should deter younger people from getting the procedure done. In another video with more than 120,000 likes, he lists the three worst plastic surgeries for teenagers, aiming to prevent young people from mindlessly attempting them without being aware of the risks. Now, Lesha, you've obviously spent a lot of time in reporting on health trends that appear on social media and specifically those that are around cosmetic procedures and aesthetic surgeries. Obviously, it is kind of concerning when you have people that are doing these procedures and, you know, that's their livelihood are coming to the forefront saying there are a lot of young people that are getting procedures that maybe don't even know the full risk of what they're dealing with. Yeah, you know, I think it's a trend that has definitely skyrocketed in recent years and it probably is not going to be going away anytime soon. I mean, even if you go on Reddit or Instagram or Facebook, you see tons of young people talking about how they want to get nose jobs or, I mean, these are like teenagers even um, already with several procedures under their belt at at a very young age, um, kind of driven by this like TikTok selfie face culture. And um, 
I imagine that will probably continue. Um, so given that, you know, it's good that there are some social media influencers like Dr. Anthony Yoon, who has a huge following on TikTok, 8 million people. He's probably like the plastic surgeon that you always see pop up when it comes to like reaction videos to cosmetic procedures on TikTok, that he kind of provides a bit, a dose of reality to his audience by saying, Hey, like you don't always need to get this type of procedure done, or these are the risks that come with these procedures. Um, so it's good that, that people like that on the site are out there trying to kind of clarify the risks to the young people. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't see this really stopping anytime soon. And Mark, I'm curious on that point because to, to Lesha's point, 8 million followers. I think a lot of people probably get on social media and they get a lot of, oh, people are listening to me. I have this sort of swaying attention. But to use it for good in this way to actually pull aside a young adult or a teenager and say, this is a procedure that could have, you know, kind of a long lasting impact on your health or your appearance. And, you know, you're only a child or a teenager at that point. What responsibility do you think it falls into with HCPs or brands to be able to come out and say, like, we're recognizing this trend, but... You know, you have to be informed before you make these decisions. Yeah, no, it's an excellent question. I mean, social media, just like any form of promotion, uh, is going to uh, seems to to be a vehicle for increasing demand. You know, it increases inbound inquiries uh, amongst HCPs for these kinds of things. You know, you one would hope. You know, mm-hmm. uh, which is the old uh, you know tagline in t- TV commercials. You know, ask your doctor about. Unfortunately, with a lot of these user-generated uh, TikToks, you don't even have that. Um, so you would, you would, so it's a, a more even more important that, that voices like Dr. Yoon's are heard. You know, giving that that dose of uh, of context. Um, and you know, I was just reporting a story this week on the uh, new obesity medications. Not not all of them new, but the GLP one medications. And some of the clinicians I'm speaking to are saying that um, you know all the efforts that the pharma industry is doing to promote them is a good thing in terms of creating that inbound traffic to them and it forces them to be able to get learned on, learn it on the topic so that they can answer those questions, um, you know, for their patients, uh, and educate them properly. Uh, but you know, the flip side is, is that not everybody is consulting their clinician before making these kinds of choices. Uh, I mean, ultimately they have to go to a clinician to get the, 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 you know, the surgery in this case, uh, the, uh, the, the, the rhinoplasty or whatever it is. So, um, it's, 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 and like any medium, it has, to, it has good, good aspects and bad aspects. And that has to be obviously be taken into account. And I think it's interesting you bring up the kind of tie in. I know we talked a few weeks ago about the weight loss trends and about this kind of what I think maybe some people would see as, as vanity in terms of I want to lose weight and maybe I'm using a drug that's off label. I'm sure that there's a lot of uh, tie in too with people that are say, oh, I just want my nose to be a little thinner. It's not necessarily for any other reason than aesthetic and cosmetic purposes. But if you're a teenager or somebody that doesn't know the full risks or dangers involved, you know, that could be a a pretty serious decision you make. Right. These are cosmetic aspects. Uh, Those, you know, obesity is something differently, different entirely, given that, you know, it's a a disease um, that uh, has, from what I learned, 236 different you know, downstream impacts, you know, from hypertension to, you know, diabetes to everything else. So, um, but these cosmetic procedures nevertheless have serious medical ramifications and they need to be treated as such. So our last story is one that still continues in the kind of cosmetic space involves vampire cosmetics, cutting ties with rock icon, Alice Cooper, after he said gender affirming care for trans kids was quote a fad. In a recent interview with Stereo Gum, Cooper said trying to find your identity is confusing as a child or teenager, but dismissed gender-affirming care and the, quote, 
whole woke thing. He said, quote, I'm understanding that there are cases of transgender, but I'm afraid that it's also a fad. And I'm afraid there's a lot of people claiming to be this just because they want to be that. I find it wrong when you've got a six-year-old kid who has no idea. He just wants to play and you're confusing him, telling him, quote, yeah, you're a boy, but you could be a girl if you want to be. In the interview, he also made anti-trans remarks about access to public bathrooms. Days after the piece was published, the Long Beach, California-based cosmetics company let go of Cooper as a collaborator in a post on social media. Quote, in light of recent statements by Alice Cooper, we will no longer be doing a makeup collaboration. We stand with all members of the LGBTQIA plus community and believe everyone should have access to health care. All pre-order sales will be refunded. This controversy also coincides with another rock icon, Santana, making anti-trans remarks at a concert in New Jersey before ultimately apologizing. This kind of goes back to a thing that we've talked about before, where it's brands navigating you know, very tricky waters. Obviously, it brings in the trans issue, which has been top of mind, I think, in state legislatures and uh, different areas across the country, but also brings in the cosmetics, too, where a company has to look at remarks that a spokesperson or a collaborator has made and say, you know, what, what is going to be our response here? And obviously they went in a separate direction than Alice Cooper. Sure. Sure. I mean, look, I'm, a, I'm as big an Alice Cooper as fan as the rest of us, but, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's another cautionary tale, as you say, Jack, for, uh, making sure that, uh, you know, these companies properly vet, uh, the views of their influencers before, uh, you know, sitting down with them, uh, for, um, uh, public consumption uh, style interviews. Uh, it's an unfortunate trend, uh, as, as, as you're pointing out here, uh, the, the trend of uh, these uh, negative statements uh, made about gender affirming care, you know, however you, you know, fall out on this issue. Um, you know, we need to support, you know, people in the LGBT community, community um, to, to make informed decisions here along with, along with their parents. And uh, there's no place, you know, for, for kinds of these kinds of sort of uh, dismissive types of views, that's for sure. Yeah. And I think it's one of those things, unless I want to bring you into it, it's just, you know, again, wherever you fall on the issue, I, I, you know, people are allowed to have disagreements on that. I think it's when you start going into, you know, he says the whole woke thing and it just starts to get into more kind of vague platitudes than whatever. And, and having read the interview, it wasn't necessarily focused on vampire cosmetics. This was just him talking Riffing about his on. career and talking about life. And unfortunately a brand then has to look at that and say, yeah, you weren't necessarily there promoting us, but you said something that ultimately damages our brand value. Yeah. And I just want to provide some context as well. Um, you know, the, the issue of gender affirming care has been, you know, challenged and I guess banned, or there's a lot of states right now that are attempting to ban gender affirming care, um, more conservative states. And just to give some context on this larger issue, um, according to a mother Jones article, more than a third of transgender youth ages 13 to 17 live in states that have passed bans on gender affirming care. And um, it's been happening a lot just in the last year. So the first three months of 2023, there were more bills introduced in just those first three months um, that basically restricted access than the last six years combined. Mm. So it's a very relevant and controversial issue right now, um, just, you know, when it comes to access to care. So, um, you know, I think it's important that if a brand can say, hey, we're going to cut ties with someone who's, you know, possibly threatening brand safety or, or making, you know, controversial statements. Um, given that context, I think, you know, the, the brand made the right choice in this situation. 
And it is interesting, too, because I saw people talking about it online where obviously this is Alice Cooper making these statements. There's also been members of KISS who have made comments about um, the trans community. Dee Snyder, uh, another famous hair star of the 1980s. And people basically making the point that these guys who have traditionally you know, sported very androgynous and kind of gender bending looks are the ones suddenly coming up with arguments against gender affirming care and kind of noting the irony there. Not that hypocrisy really is good ever, point. not that people have ever been stopped by their own hypocrisy, but when you hear Alice Cooper, who's dressed like Alice Cooper for 50 years, suddenly has issues with how people are dressing or choosing to identify, there is a certain um, irony in that. So welcome to my nightmare indeed. Exactly. <laughs> That's it for this week. The MMM podcast is produced by Bill Fitzpatrick, Gordon Failer, Lesha Bushak, and Jack O'Brien. Our theme music is by Sizzy M. Sohn. Rate, review, and follow every episode wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes out every week. And be sure to check out our website, mmm-online.com, for the top news stories in pharma marketing. <laughs>